Hello, and welcome to another great episode of Unstoppable War Eyes, a resource that helps motivated individuals press on towards the mark of self-actualization using a blended tool set of old-school wisdom and new breed tactics that help achieve this end. My name is Sim, and today's episode, we're going to be talking about the Zen State. So today, we've got a interesting topic, or at least I think it's interesting, because of the implications it can have on you and how you live your life. And this topic is sort of something that you kind of have to be ready for, and I don't think everyone is. And that's fine, you know, especially the more advanced areas of this. But like I said... It's interesting, and this is just a basic overview, even though I think we'll get quite deep, and I'm not a religious studies major. I didn't study, like, religions or philosophies or any of that in college or anything like that, but I do think these things are pretty interesting, and especially how they relate to life, because... Religions, philosophies, uh, worldviews, mindsets, all of that, those are things, vehicles through which you live life. So uh, this topic is relating to a philosophy, and this philosophy, this topic, is what I call the Zen state of mind. The Zen state of mind. And I'll get to what that means very shortly, but... Here's some base for this topic. So if you look at the average person and their day-to-day existence, what is it like? Well, of course, you have all sorts of obligations and priorities and thoughts and feelings. But if you dive deep enough, you'll find varying levels of, how can I call it, restlessness. Restlessness, right? The average person finds himself sort of trapped in this cage of consciousness, feeling limited, being a limited person in a limited point of view. And I mean, you're only one person, you can only be one place at a time, right? You can't be two places at the same time unless. They invent clinic technology. But until then, you're pretty much limited, right? Um, So yeah, the average person finds themselves sort of trapped in this cage of consciousness. And at this point, you probably know the feeling I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I'm sure there have been times in your life where you felt this limitation, where you felt helpless, where you felt powerless, unable to change circumstances, or even... Like you're just alone and isolated. So think about maybe somebody said something that really got on your skin or said something to diminish your, your character and you took it personally. You really took it bad and all sorts of things happened. Your emotional state was disrupted. So what happens? You start creating this chain of thoughts about how that person is a bad person 
how they dissed you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this starts like a seed, a seed of anger, discontent, whatever. And this seed starts to grow into a tree and it starts to dominate your entire consciousness and mental real estate. And you can sort of see where I'm going with this, right? And of course, for many people, these types of emotions aren't really processed. They're just sort of bottled up and they end up resurfacing at a later time. And once they resurface, more thoughts and more thoughts pile up until you reach a tipping point and you need some sort of escape. You say, oh man, I need a drink. I can't wait to go to the bar. Or you pull out your phone and you start scrolling on social media or you do something else to distract you. And yes, our world is a world of distraction. But also, with distraction comes more thinking. More things like, I shouldn't be doing this, I'm such a bad person, or I really need to get back to work on that project, and other thoughts like these, and you feel a sense of shame. So, an emotion comes with that thought as well. And while thought of as quote-unquote bad, negative emotions do have their place. And they can help be the spark to action. They can be a good source of jet fuel. However, for many people, too many people, this negative thinking is not the start to action. Rather, it is the depressant of action. And it keeps you stuck in the realm of thoughts all day long. And of course, this cycle continues on and on and on for most people's lives until they stop thinking which for most people is when they're dead, right? <laughs> so that's the problem with being human. Our ability to think is a double-edged sword. And in our modern society, the ability to think is highly prized as it should be. However, there's too much emphasis on thinking, not enough on doing, not enough on putting on the reps, not enough on just being, and this is where the Zen state comes in. So I got to ask you, when you think of the word Zen, what do you think of? Do you think of like a chilled, chilled out, blissful state where everything is all good and nothing bad ever happens, no negative emotions ever happen? If you do, then this aligns with the popular conception of Zen for people who are not familiar with an Eastern philosophy like Zen. And that's fine. That's perfectly okay. But Zen is not blissing out. It's not tuning out of life. Rather, it's more of an intimate turning inward towards an experiential embrace of life. And in Zen, the state of no mind or empty mind is sought after in an attempt to experience life objectively. However, like I said before, you can only be at one place at a time and you'll never experience life completely objectively because you have the subjective experience of being a person occupying a certain point in space. Therefore, objectivity, true objectivity is not possible in this three-dimensional reality. But you can get close. You can get really, really close. And that's been the work of people for thousands of years throughout various traditions to remove the subjective distortions that we all have 
from the mind and come as close as we can to true objectivity. Now, I'm not a Zen Buddhist, but I appreciate the approach Zen has to life because there's no dogma. There's no scripture. There's no unnecessary thing. It's just boom, experience. And when I was introduced to Zen about a decade ago, it really hit me that the philosophy was so clear cut and it seemed like it was foundational to a lot of other things that really make sense in life. And then I started looking for that everywhere. And lo and behold, when you look for something, you'll find it. So with Zen, there just is, right? Everything just is. And since everything just is, one is will lead to another is. It's probably a hard concept to grasp if you're not really familiar with these types of concepts. But once you do, it all starts to make really good sense. So with Zen, there is no mental rationalization. There's no unnecessary thinking. It's just A to B, boom, straight line, straight line philosophy. And in normal thought, we think we have to get somewhere, right? We think we have to do something. We think something has to be accomplished. And on one level, that works. On the normal day-to-day consciousness, that works. It works for sure. It works to see things as out there needing to be achieved, needing to be grasped. But obviously, many of us, in fact, all of us know the level of pain and suffering that this comes with, feeling that, again, we're separate from the object of our affection, whether it be a promotion, a job, a romantic relationship, money, status, all this stuff. We see that as outside of ourselves, and that can cause a bunch of suffering. And like I said, that does work, and it can work. But in the Zen state paradigm, in the Zen state of mind, there's nothing to achieve. There's nothing to gain. There's only differing forms of experience. All these experiences are experienced, and they're separate but equal. There are some experiences that are subjectively preferable to others for sure, of course, like having money, status, all that stuff. But objectively speaking, they all equal out. And this everything equals out for me personally. This isn't my day-to-day mode of being because I'm not like an enlightened swami. I'm not a sage. I'm not a master. But this type of being where I see everything as just being okay is something that I definitely aim for. And I admire people who have this Zen state and you see this type of inner stillness, this type of unnatural calm that they have. And obviously in day-to-day society, it's very rare to have that. Most people don't have that unless they've been trained in that. But then when you meet someone like this, like I remember several years ago when I met a monk, uh, he had the Zen state and It wasn't because he was a monk that he had the Zen state, but just because he went through that type of training, that type of mode was natural to him. 
and he had this calm, this type of, again, inner stillness that he didn't have to say anything, but he said a lot of things. And I really admire people like that who have that because um, I think the world would be a better place if many of us had some of this. So that's something that I definitely aim for and obviously may not get it. But if you shoot for the moon, you'll land on the stars, right? (laughs) And if this type of thing sounds familiar, that's because it might. It might, right? I consider Zen to be the Eastern cousin of Stoicism, Stoic philosophy. And for those of you who don't know what Stoicism is, Stoicism is a philosophy that's growing more popular. It's experiencing a modern resurgence. It's a philosophy that focuses on dealing with situations as they are, not how we'd like them to be, and dealing with them as they are, and... Yeah, just living life. So similar to Zen, but Zen really emphasizes what is called uh, non-dualism. And in this non-dual state, there is a quieting of the mind, which just isn't there in Stoicism, at least not on the outset. And Stoicism, from my point of view, is a worldview Whereas Zen is a mode of existence. So you can have uh, Zen without Stoicism, but I don't think you can have Stoicism without Zen, the Zen state. Um, Cultivating that type of mental state is definitely um, part of what Stoicism is about, even though they didn't have the framework that Zen does. So, so, um, In our typical experience of life, going back to this non-duality, everything is seen as separate. You know, subject, object, me, that, myself, others, myself, him, him, her, they, us, you know, so on. So many divisions. That's duality. And in non-duality, there is no subject and there is no object because... Again, everything just is. What's the experience of being smart versus being stupid? Nothing, really. It's just a varying level of experience. You can choose to be this or that, but regardless, you're still having experience. The content hasn't, or the content has changed, but the underlying awareness of that content is not. You're still aware that you're smart or stupid or not even aware but you're still aware that you're having this experience and this may be somewhat uncomfortable to wrap your mind around but there's many 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 recorded pieces of literature that speak about this non-dualism and one of the best that I've ever read is called The Parental Philosophy by this guy named Aldous Huxley. He wrote this book called Brave New World. And I've spoken about this before on this uh, podcast. But Perennial Philosophy, great book that really ties together a lot of those loose ends from many different traditions. 
And I also made an episode about this as well, which I'll put in the description of this episode. But going back to the Zen state, when you operate from this Zen state, you realize that there's only two options. You either experience whatever it is, or you just don't. That's it. Whatever you think about the experience doesn't really matter. The world will keep turning regardless whether you do or don't do. And that means everything is fine as it is. Regardless of what happens, there will always be some type of experience. And again, this type of being in the world is a shock to most people because it just takes a lot to just experience. It's a huge shock to the system because we've been socialized all of our lives to basically react to life when things happen instead of responding and consciously choosing what experience we want to have. Again, going back to the average person, think about their day-to-day reaction. It's all reaction. A notification comes on the phone. Pick up your phone. Reaction. Someone says something to you online. You get mad. Reaction. Someone cuts you off on traffic. You get mad. Reaction. There is no responding. There is no conscious awareness to these things. They're just conditioned reaction. And who can blame us, right? Who can blame us, right? All we are is conditioning. When you were a baby, there was no conditioning. You didn't have an identity. You just existed. But what happens as you grow older? As you grow up, things start accumulating. Your name is so-and-so. You were born on so-and-so date. The so-and-so, they're your parents. You have so-and-so brothers and sisters. You're in a so-and-so family. You grew up here. Your friends are so-and-so. And the content of your life just keeps piling on and on and on and on. So naturally, this content is very sticky. Obviously, this content is meant to be sticky. This is the bedrock of your identity. And it's meaningful. It gives your life context. Because in a dual state, how we live our lives normally, you have to establish yourself separate from the world. Because, I mean, yeah, that's how you live life in the three-dimensional world. So... This content, you form an identity out of it. And going back to this creation of identity, naturally we start to develop likes, dislikes, aversions, empowering beliefs, and of course self-limiting beliefs. You start to make a grand story out of all this content. You start to make justifications for you being who you are. And I spoke about this on the episode on thinking errors that it's easy to mistake this content for who we really are and what we really are. But you probably already know the outcome of this. If you're human and if you're alive and if you're an adult, you know the outcome of this. It's a mass of congealed thoughts. By the time someone's a teenager, they already have their identity. And of course, they have thoughts flowing through their head each and every day. Does so-and-so like me? Well, I get an A on this test. I don't like this class. I think the teacher is a bum. Oh shit, I hope my dad doesn't catch me doing this because he gets mad when I do this and I'll disappoint him and he'll think I'm a failure. All this stuff, right? That's the normal teenage experience for a lot of people. And of course, this exaggerates as you get older. And I just want to say that there's nothing wrong with this. We all have identities. Obviously, we're all raised that act a certain way in the world. We all have different circumstances. These things just don't go away just because you enter the quote-unquote zen state, right? 
You don't just become enlightened and then you sit on top of a mountain and then you never leave. It's just that the Zen state creates an impartial ground for things to play out and you start to view things with less subjectivity. And this is the second shock. Many people just can't get past the fact that their identity, the content of their life, is not who they truly are. Because if you aren't the things that happen to you, or even those things aren't even who you are, then what the hell are you? Because in Zen thought, uh, the self, who you are, is just an illusion. It's not real. Now, don't get me wrong, the self exists, but it's not real. Now, is that true? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But Zen and other non-dual traditions make a pretty convincing case for it. So think about a mirage in the desert. That mirage exists in the subjective point of your perception of your mind. By an objective reality, the mirage isn't real. It's only until you get to a certain distance that you see the mirage starts to fade away. And that's how it is with the Zen state. The closer you get to the state and the more immersed you get in this state, the more you start to break up the mirage of identity. But going back to uh, Stoic philosophy real quick. Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, said, he said, we, he said all we are is involved in externals. He said, you know, what do we admire? Externals. What do we spend our energy on? Externals. So is it any wonder that we're in fear and distress? How else could it be, right? When we forge our identities out of external things, how could we not be conditioned by these external things? If content is all you are, and you're basically nothing without that content, then you're heavily invested in it. Why would you let it go? There's no reason to. There is literally no reason to let that go because when that content disappears, you disappear. There's no underlying ground for it unless you develop this quote-unquote Zen state, which is always there, by the way, but it takes acknowledgement to realize that. So there's a way to solve situations in your life. There's a way to solve them without the unnecessary thinking and... This obviously makes life incredibly simple, deceptively simple. But it's the unnecessary thinking that makes it complicated. And it gets complicated because you're a theorist, not a practitioner. And (laughs) boy, do we have a lot of theorists today. And since our world is so centered around thinking and doing and instead of doing and being, uh, the theorists get all the acclaim. These are the people who know all about something. They know all the ins and outs. They know what will happen if this certain thing happens. They have studied. They have memorized. They have done this. They have done that. Uh, But many of them, many of them just aren't doers, right? Just because you know about something doesn't really mean much. So I can give you an example. I was talking with this person I know, and... Uh, They were saying people with college degrees were, quote-unquote, enlightened. And I wasn't really understanding them, so I asked them to explain, and they said, oh, you know, they know about geopolitics and finance and how the world works and so on and so forth and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. All that stuff's nice and all, but that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't make you, quote-unquote, enlightened. 
they said, oh, yeah, of course it does. You know, you just you just know a bunch more stuff than the average person. And that really threw me for a loop because I was like, wait, you're trying to tell me that just because I have my name written on a fucking piece of paper that somehow makes me more competent than someone who spent years actually living their life and dealing with its ups and downs. Someone coming right out of college is more quote unquote enlightened than someone who is 45 years old and they've had to deal with uh, ups and downs in their life and they've still managed to come out in one piece. What gives me or you or anybody that right? I was like, sure, you can know the entire dictionary from A to Z, but that doesn't mean you actually know how to live life. If all it was needed was to have a college degree to live life effectively, then damn, we we should all get college degrees so we can justify the student loan madness in the United States, at least. Get a college degree and instant enlightenment. (laughs) Sign me up for that. But the thing is, this individual doesn't even have a college degree. He doesn't have a degree. He flunked out. And there's nothing wrong with not having a college degree. Most people don't even do anything related to their degree. But if you're going to talk about people who don't have degrees and you yourself doesn't have a degree, then how the hell does that make any sense? So you can see how this type of raw identity-based thinking can easily distort things. You create an identity off of an arbitrary thing like, I have a degree, so I am better. How does that thinking help anybody? Hint. It doesn't, right? I work in marketing. It's great. Great, great field. I have the opportunity to be around and learn from some very intelligent people. But there are a lot of people in this field who are just simply theorists, when in reality, marketing is pretty simple. Uh, A long time ago, I used to work for a company that didn't make their bottom line their top line. As in, they weren't willing to push for profit in every single area of the business. And of course, the key focus of business is to make money. And of course, it uses that money to bolster itself and also do other things to help out its community. That's business and is ideal. You make money and then you use that money to make your community and places around you a better place. Um, but again, this company did not make its bottom line top line and at the time when I was working with this company I was in junior management so I didn't really have much say so I just executed and I just let the day-to-day management um, be the heads of upper management you know let them handle that I just execute and um, I just you know do what I'm told right Um, so I realized that this wasn't going on but in my head I was like, what the hell are we doing? We just twiddling our thumbs here? I was like, (laughs) this this isn't a charity. This is not a not-for-profit, right? This is straight-up business. You either make money or you don't, plain and simple. If you do, great. You have a job. If you don't, you better find a new line of work. No surprise, that company ended up going out of business. Why? Too much theory, not enough practice. What about the type of thinking like, oh, I should do this or I should do that. And it doesn't really matter what you should do. All that matters is what you actually do. And there's tons of things you should do, but whether or not you'll do them is a different story. 
And so since we have a limited amount of time to live our lives, we won't do everything we should do. That would be great if we could. But that's why they say talk is cheap. Um, And it's funny because outside of these audio episodes, I don't really talk a whole lot. I'm kind of reserved person. And I'm reserved because I know that talk is cheap. It's it's funny. It's uh I'm extroverted. I've tested as an extrovert, but I'm a reserved extrovert, so I look sort of like an introverted person, but I'm I'm really not. But um I know that talk is cheap because there's been so many times where people have said something and it just hasn't happened. And it hasn't happened because there's a gap between idea and implementation. And whether you cross that gap is up to you. And of course, I'm not immune to this. I've said some stuff in the past that I haven't implemented on, executed on. I think we all have. But uh, it's just to realize that um, the saying, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Less talking, more hearing, more doing. Another one. People want to give up a habit or start a habit, especially in this quarantine time. That's awesome. Starting habits is always great. Doing things is always good. Do 30 days. For example, do 30 days without smoking cigarettes or 30 days of reading an educational book for 30 days or 30 days of getting to bed at 10 o'clock every single night for 30 days. For many people, they'll either be inconsistent or do it for a week and never pick it back up, and then they'll just ditch it. Like all those people who start something at the beginning of New Year's, they're good in January, but as soon as February, March rolls around, nowhere to be found. And after that failure to execute, my question would be, why? Why is the reason you did that? Now, in the ordinary mode of thinking... This could create shame, like, oh, I'm a failure, oh, I'm stupid, I deserve to be punished, etc., etc. And again, this is how we're conditioned. But the question still remains, what stopped you from doing those 30 days? And of course, you can have any reason. The reason might be perfectly valid, or it might not. But either way, it's still a reason. And that reason prevents you from starting that habit. With a Zen state of mind... You look into why that is without fault and, of course, without blame. So all this thinking, thinking, thinking can get in the way of pure objectivity and doing things. And I've tried it, right? I've tried it. I've tried it. I've tried to think my way out of problems. I've tried to think my way out of my misery. I've tried to think my way out of this. I've tried to think my way out of depression. I've tried to think my way out of so-and-so and so. And so it just does not do anything for you. So if you want to be like ice cream on the sidewalk on a summer day, keep endlessly thinking and see where the hell that gets you. So to wrap this up, I didn't really do this topic justice, to be honest, because there's so much you can say on a Zen mindset that I haven't said because this would be an hours long discussion. And I'm not a expert at this. I'm just taking this from my own point of view and from what I've experience and what I've read about, right? There are people who are better suited to talk about this than me, but 
I thought this was pretty interesting, and maybe you would too. So hopefully you did. Hope you thought it was cool. But uh, anyway, gonna wrap this up. And um, if you want to get a hint of what I'm talking about here, I've got six suggestions that may go a long way to helping you. So think about these and see if you want to incorporate them. So for the first one, I would say would be meditation. And meditation and Zen practice are like toast and butter. You can't really have one without the other. And that's why all these people who practice quote unquote meditation for like 10 minutes are not really meditating. They're practicing mindfulness. Now, mindfulness and meditation can be overlapping, but they're different. You can be mindful anywhere, and it's a great tool to use. Meditation is the systematic act of carving out time, carving out space directly for being mindful, purposely mindful. Meditation allows you to be mindful in your day-to-day life when you're not focused on being mindful. So what will happen when you practice meditation for the first time if you're new to it? Well, the first time you do it, like most people, you may not be able to do it for even five minutes. Some people are naturally more talented than others at that. Um, And if you are, good for you. Awesome. But most people will not be able to do it for a good amount of time. Um, You'll become extremely aware of all the noise and all the chatter and all the nonsense that filters through your head on a second-to-second basis. But then what happens? You sit for five minutes. Then eventually you go for 10, then 15. Then you stretch out to 30, maybe even an hour. And eventually you'll start to develop this inner silence where you get a glimpse of this Zen state. It's just like, shh, stop. Just stop thinking, right? That's, that's what it will be like. And it's pretty jarring the first time you experience it because you're just like, oh, I don't have to keep doing this mental chat or mental rumination. Because no, no one tells you that you don't have to stop. No one tells you that you can stop thinking. No, one, no one's ever told you that. And like I said, I'm not a Zen Buddhist, so I don't practice what is known as Zazen meditation. That's their form of meditation. But I do practice what is known as uh, Vipassana meditation. Pretty similar from the outset, but Vipassana is pretty much mindfulness meditation in action. And I would do great disrespect to adherents and students of Zen if I said I practice Zazen or anybody who is not a Zen practitioner. You're just meditating or you're doing some form of open meditation. Unless you're a practitioner of Zazen or Zen, you're not doing Zazen meditation. But Vipassana is very popular and there are many retreats, Vipassana meditation retreats. And um, if you go to a meditation studio near you, uh, they'll probably start out with Vipassana. Um, But just start where you are for meditating. You can start by sitting for a certain period of time and doing absolutely nothing. You can use an app like Calm or Headspace to get you going. I know there's many other ones out there. Like um, uh, one of my meditation teachers, she used Insight Timer. That's another one. And then um, see what happens. See what comes up. And uh, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of uh, the Zen mode. The second one would be focus on objective reality. 
and Zen wouldn't be Zen without this focus on objectivity. And again, what is objectivity? I would describe objectivity as everything that is outside of you. Pretty simple. Basically things that happen regardless of how you feel about them. So if I drop a stone into the pond, it makes a splash. If I play a key on the piano, it makes a sound. All these things that just happen because of natural laws and stuff like that. Then, of course, when you start chaining events together, you get A causing B causing C causing D and so on and so forth. And that's pretty obvious. We learn this early on in life. We learn about cause and effect early on in life. But in your life, there is some things that need to happen. You may have to pay your bills. You may have to go to work. You may have to do this. You may have to clean your house. You may have to do that. You may have to do whatever. And again, you choose your subjective experience of life. But objectively, these things need to be completed if you want that outcome. Either you want them or need them in your life. So that's what it is. So what's the solution to this? The solution would be, you guessed it, some type of objective, some type of goal. And goals exist independent of your thinking and feeling about them because goals are just targets. They're just experiences. Because without a goal for the day, your day will be a repeat of the previous day. I almost guarantee it. And why is that? That's because the nature of the mind is compulsive. You're going to be drawn back to what you did yesterday, only with slight variations. And this is part of the reason why people don't change much over time. You can think about change. You can have good intentions. But the act of changing, of putting in the work completely different story altogether and of course as they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions that's the second one focus on objective reality so the third one i would say would be to meet your resistance so ask yourself what is stopping you from achieving an objective outcome it could be anything it could be you don't feel like it or some other reason. And as I stated before, there are many good reasons for not doing something. And that reason is usually resistance, you know, something inside that just stops you from doing something. It could be anything from your self-image or even self-sabotage. You can have facets of your identity tied up in limitation, which we all do at some point, but eventually you need to find ways to move beyond that. And I'm not going to lie, this type of work it's going to hurt. It's definitely going to hurt. But if you want to level up in your life, you need to transcend these self-imposed limitations. And a form of resistance can be something like procrastination. Procrastination is a deliberate avoidance of doing something that needs to be done. Why is that? Why are you procrastinating on that? That requires deeper examination. So that's the third one. Look at your resistance. So the fourth one is what I'd call deconstruction. So going along with this facet of resistance is deconstructing that resistance. Deconstructing that identity that you have. Taking a solid look at all these things that you can or can't do and seeing what weight they have, which they don't. Not really because, again, in Zen philosophy, the self as we know it, what we know as the self is an illusion. So here's how something like, like this would work. Let's say something happened to you a long time ago. 
Maybe your parents beat you as a child, or you suffered, suffered some kind of abuse, or you weren't popular in school, something. Something happened, and you took it personally, and you forged an identity out of that. Some portion of your identity is wrapped up in that. And you may have very legitimate reasons to hate your parents, or to hate people, or to hate so-and-so, and all these other things. And again, you can legitimately feel a mix of emotions from things that happened. That's your right. But I think in today's world, we tend to sort of romanticize things that happen to us. Um, we make it too precious. We make our pain too, uh, too, too, um, too enshrined in our consciousness that there's not enough emotional distance from it. Because the fact is, uh, in most cases, that event has passed, you know. It has no bearing on you as an individual right now in this moment. Uh, these things are things that happen to you, but again, they're not you. And uh, they still don't prevent that underlying awareness from shining through. That underlying awareness will always shine through no matter what happens unless you're dead, but if stuff like this did happen to you, then you would meet with a good therapist and they'd break it down in their own way, similar to that. But when you meet with a therapist or someone like this or someone who counsels you, all sorts of defenses rise up like, oh man, you don't understand. No one understands me. Um, you don't get it or so-and-so and so-and-so like all these things come up and obviously I'm not a therapist but uh, I know therapist and this is how it happens like the first meeting or first couple of meetings will be very defensive very contentious if there's somebody who has a lot of problems especially if there's been a lot of family issues but eventually over time these fades away because they realize that these excuses these reasons they're all just illusions they're in a persistent illusion, but they're an illusion nonetheless, because you can't go back and change the past. It's done. It's done. But what you can do is you can look at the future and alter that and alter how that plays out. And you'll best be able to do that when you have some inkling of the Zen state of mind. So that's the fourth one, deconstruction. So the fifth one would be to remove distractions and like I said earlier there are many ways to escape this to escape this work many things to pull your attention out of feeling a certain way but all they truly do is prevent you from truly seeing yourself and they fog up the glass so to speak and when I say distraction I mean anything that is stimulation Going on your phone, clicking around on the internet, watching TV. All these subtle ways you try to escape the present moment. Even listening to this episode can be a distraction. And you know what it is. But anyway, this goes back to the meditation portion. This is why we meditate. We want to be mindful to life as it is. We want to show up to life. Can you do it? Maybe. Look at the conditioning. Conditioned to be distracted, conditioned to be unfocused, to not experience the Zen state of mind. And when you're meditating, all sorts of feelings and emotions come up. One of the main ones, especially 
uh, I can speak for myself, would be agitation. Then you ask or ask yourself, why am I agitated? And if you're into self-development, you may know that there's this popular concept called the dopamine detox that involves ridding yourself of low-value stimulation. I've already talked about this and written about this before, and if you want more info on that, the link will be in the description to this podcast. So the sixth and final one is what I call knowledge into action. This all pinges on knowledge into action. Action is best when it's informed with a method, and that method comes from knowledge. Knowledge without action is stagnation, and action without knowledge is foolishness, right? So eventually, you've got to get going. You've got the book. You've read the material. You, you know it inside out. When are you going to practice it? When are you going to start that business? When are you going to apply for that job? When are you going to start waking up early? When are you going to quit your addiction? When are you going to go to the gym? When are you going to start eating healthy? Right? That's why Bruce Lee said, be like water. Because water is always changing. It's going from one form to the next to the next without resistance. The human body is 70% water, which I find really interesting. So the question is, are you going to let the remaining 30% stop you from changing? So that's it for this one. I truly hope you enjoyed it. It got pretty long, sort of rambled at some points. But I hope you get what I was trying to say. And I hope you enjoyed this topic. Uh, most importantly, I hope this made sense. Lots to take in in this one, so don't be afraid to listen to it again if you feel you need to. And until next time, be like water and sayonara. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in and listening in. I truly appreciate your support and your attention. It means a lot. If you like this content, go ahead and like the content. Go ahead and share the content with at least two other people you think would benefit. It doesn't hurt to spread the good stuff around, right? And if you're listening in on iTunes, go ahead and rate the show with a honest rating this will definitely help the show grow and i truly appreciate your feedback so until next time stay good take care of yourself take care of other people and peace